Hi, I'm Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for conversation about something where they are true leaders. So we can all learn from it. Let's go. All right, we are live with Kevin at uh, Double Fine. And uh, today, you know, your host, me, Patrick, is having a voice like I'm in drinking Jack Daniels, like there's uh, no tomorrow of rock and roll life. But unfortunately, I just got a bit of a cold over here in uh, Vilnius, where I'm right now. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, fantastic. I'm super looking forward to this conversation. You're one of those people that when I mention your name, people kind of burst out in typically very positive things. I mean, you seem to have made quite an impression on the whole industry. So let's talk about that to begin with. What's your story, you know, leading up to what you do today? Oh, okay. The short version is that uh, I've wanted to make games pretty much my whole life when I was eight or nine, decided that that was something I wanted to do. Taught myself to program because I knew I wasn't going to be an artist. That's just not where my talent lies. Fast forward to my university years, I ended up getting an internship at EA. It was actually a, a design internship when I was working on some level design. And in the middle of the internship, someone came to me and said, you know, I think you'd make a great producer. Have you thought about that? And I said, no, because what is a producer? So after talking with some of the other producers there, I ended up switching tracks to a production internship and turned that into associate producer. I was at EA for about four years and I ended up working at a company, Real Time Worlds, for a bit and eventually landed at Telltale and was there for a couple of years. And then that brought me here to Double Fine. That's the short version anyway. <laughs> Is there like one point where you feel like that's like a defining moment in my career? You know, one of those crossroads, something happened that truly brought you to, you know, where you are today? Um, probably the first game I worked on at EA was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And I was kind of just thrown into the deep end and got to really see what it's like to be a producer on a game and wearing the different hats that you have to wear and how flexible you have to be, but also you know sticking to the plan. It was a lot of work, but I also had a lot of fun. And I think that's the point where I knew that I really do enjoy doing this. And this is what I see myself doing for a long time. Let's jump into the topic of today, productivity, creativity, inclusion, friends or foes. Feels like we mixed a lot of things into the pot there. And I've been having some conversations on all of those topics before on this podcast. I find that often people find that these might be contradictory to some extent, for example, that you will sacrifice some creativity if you are also optimizing for a higher productivity. You have obviously already succeeded from a, let's say, resource point of view with some of these things. Let's just start with kind of like your take on these things, but let's maybe start with productivity versus creativity and how to achieve both friends or foes. You know, I kind of see there is a bit of push and pull on those because you want to allow your team to be creative and have their best ideas and, and bring those to life. But you do have a schedule, you do have a budget, and you do have to create that structure that allows you to hit those goals. But they can work together. And I will say production is quality, budget, and timeliness pick two. 
but I don't think that that's actually true. I think you can give your team a framework to work in and just the right amount of structure to maximize that productivity while also not making them feel like the process is kind of pigeonholing them or driving them in a direction that maybe they don't necessarily want to go. And I think it's really about making sure that communication stays in a good place so that as the creativity is generating different ideas, you know, if the team understands what the impact of those new ideas are, then you can make the informed decisions to make sure that you keep the productivity and keep the project on track, but also allow good creative decisions to get made. You remind me about um, an interview I read many years ago with the head of a modern museum. It was, I think it was the modern museum in Stockholm, actually. And he said that sometimes a frame is the best friend of creativity. But let's go a little bit deeper on that. When you say framework there, because obviously for someone like me, who's very much into the whole tool space and processes, how we work, et cetera, to me, not all processes and not tools are alike. It's kind of like talking about, let's say, a car. It's like, well, sure, a car is a car, but there's quite a difference if you compare, let's say, a lot with a fur. So what do we actually mean here? Can you just go a little bit deeper on what it means to you with a framework that's actually good for creativity? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's about having the tools and process in place that people feel like actually enables their creativity as opposed to being some extra burden. You want to try to make it as seamless as possible. If you've got the tools and process in a good place, it fits in with what people are doing. And so they feel like they can still do their work and generate their ideas and have the communication and get work done. And the tools are almost secondary to that. They kind of come in where they need to. They disappear when they don't need to be there. And no one feels like they're fighting anything to get something done. How often do you update this? For me, who comes from the Agile space, Agile community, we talk a lot about very often having retrospectives, updating the way we work, etc. But let's say more in practice, in your case, how does that work? I mean, do you kind of set the process in the beginning of production and then that sticks for the rest and then you evaluate and you update or do you do it more often? How does that process work for you? That's a lot of what pre-production is for, to explore different tools, different processes, figure out how exactly you're going to make the game, make those decisions, but also know that just because you've entered production doesn't mean that you're fully locked in. Because if you get to a certain point, some circumstance happens that you didn't plan for, and you're ending up hitting a wall, well, then you have to look at that and change course. And then, yeah, doing postmortems is one of the most important things that unfortunately isn't done often enough or in as much depth as they really uh, need to be done. But when you do them well, they end up giving you so much great information that you can use to revive to make sure that you understand what the team needs when they're moving to their next project. Last time we met was at the GDC in San Francisco. Awesome having some people in a room again. In one of the sessions, I really like a statement that was done at Soy from Timber. She mentioned that you need to recognize that choice of tools is really having a big effect on culture. And I'm actually not going to ask you about that because then it's going to start sounding like I'm selling favor here. But can you just a little bit more generally talk about connection between process and like the way you work and like culture? Because I know culture means a lot to you at Double Fine. Yeah, absolutely. For us, probably the two biggest things are about collaboration and openness. And when I say that, we mean in the sense that just because you're not a designer doesn't mean that you can't have some input on the design. Just because you're not an artist doesn't mean you can't have some input on the art. You know, the decisions will ultimately be made by the various leads, but we want to allow everyone on the team and even people not on the team to have ways to offer their input so that we get a broader sense of the voices and bring all that together to make our decisions. 
it absolutely does play into the culture because if you have tools that tend to silo things off, that is a cultural decision that you're making. And some places do that and that works for them. We prefer something that allows a little bit more free flow to make sure that if someone has something to say, that their voice can be heard. Let's uh, switch to the next uh, one. We also mentioned uh, inclusion. Let me start by um, even a provocative question. Are you tired about talking about inclusion in this industry? <laughs> Absolutely not, because it's a really, really important thing. It's something that I really feel like we're just at the beginning of really taking on in a meaningful way. And coming from my project management background, you know, the took the PMP test and all that good stuff. You know, you end up looking at case studies and there is no shortage of evidence out there that shows that diversity and inclusion results in better business outcomes. If you embrace it and allow it to really be a driving force in what you do, everything about your business gets better. And so for the industry, I think we're starting, but we've got a long way to go. So yeah, I'm absolutely not tired of talking about it at all. This is a bit of a far-fetched uh, thing, but um, I find that um, the games industry have a lot of work to do. But what I think is also interesting, it's also one of the industries where a lot of conversation actually happens. And uh, there's many other industries that should be doing a lot of work, but it, it's not even discussed. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I've definitely seen through talking with friends who work in, in other industries that the things that we're talking about in the game industry now absolutely exist in other industries. And the fact that we are actually taking it on, talking about it and putting ourselves in that uncomfortable space, because it really is an uncomfortable space. But the only way that we're going to grow and get better is to get out of our comfort zone and acknowledge that there are these issues and figure out collectively how we're going to take them on. So one of um, our lead investors at Favor, you know, Crandom, they've been speaking quite a bit about this and had some pretty clear plans. And they, they've been speaking a lot about, you know, the first thing you need to do is to actually to measure. If you don't even measure, you have no idea where you're going. So I salute a lot of the kind of efforts they've done. And I think we all know when it comes to where venture capital is going, you know, there's a lot of um, underrepresentation happening there. As I said, I salute them for actually taking some pretty actionable steps. And from your point of view, what are the actionable steps that needs to be taken and kind of by who? A venture capitalist, and we obviously have some games industry specific venture capitalists. What should they do? What do publishers need to do? What should studios do? What do you need to do? What do I need to do? What would be your plan of action here to make this better? Well, I, it starts with what you just said, right? You have to measure first. One of the things that we've done is back in 2020, we put out a diversity and inclusion survey to the entire company and asked a whole bunch of questions and asked for people's honest answers on it, completely anonymous, so that people could feel free to answer the way that they really wanted to. And we took that data and it highlighted some issues, some of which we were aware of and some that took us by surprise. And so we actually just got done doing a follow-up survey again, you know, asking people how they feel. And I've gotten to take an early look at some of the results and we've done better in some places and we still have a ways to go. But I think the issues of each company are going to be unique. And so it really is about finding a good way to measure, creating an environment where your employees will feel like they can answer honestly. And then the real key thing is to follow up and have very concrete, tangible actions that people see and understand are happening as a result of that feedback. Because if you don't establish that loop, then you don't have the trust of your people and then it all becomes performative. When it comes to those kind of actions, what are the most successful ones that you've seen across not only your own company, but others? 
So like a big thing that we had was people feeling that maybe they were not being heard the way that they felt, especially in meetings. And, you know, some of that was, you know, like I said, the first survey was taken in 2020, very shortly after the pandemic hit. So we were still kind of figuring out just kind of how to work in general. But one of the things we did with that is that we actually established a concrete meeting protocol in terms of etiquette, moderation, and a framework for moderators to use as they are. You know, every meeting would have a moderator. The moderator understands what their responsibility is. People understand a certain code of conduct and etiquette in the meetings. And that created an environment where people who were less likely to speak up before felt more comfortable doing so. You know, the earlier results that we're seeing from the most recent survey as well is that there has been improvement there. You know, again, we're not where we need to be. We need to keep finding more ways to help people feel comfortable in those spaces. But that was a very tangible thing we did in response to a problem that we saw. You know, that reminds me about something I was going through um, kind of a guide for how to be a good moderator at the round table. And um, a lot of the stuff I thought was very, very good to make sure that you kind of get the best out of everyone present in the room. But the guide was actually created with the purpose of something similar to what you just described. It was about kind of inclusion. And I was like, this is good leadership. I mean, everyone benefits from this, you know? So I think, you know, doing better on this will make everyone happy. This is, doesn't have to be a special interest thing, so to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it absolutely does benefit everybody. And to that point, you know, it's important to include everybody in it as well. I think one of the traps is that diversity initiatives can kind of feel like it's for a certain subset of the company. And I think it's incumbent on leadership at any company to make it very clear that, no, this is about all of us creating an environment where we all thrive. Because yes, when one person is negatively affected, that is going to cascade through and eventually affect everybody. So we have to have everybody on board. You know, you mentioned uh, COVID. Can you talk a bit about how you adapted to COVID in terms of work processes and um, kind of where you're going now? Yeah, I mean, it was quite the transition. Uh, I mean, fortunately, we already had a, a handful of employees who were already remote. So we kind of understood what that was like. But obviously, scaling it up to an entire studio is a whole different challenge. And it required us to look at new tools. That's one of those times, you know, an, an unforeseen circumstance happens in the middle of production that makes you reevaluate your tools and your processes. And so we had to look more at cloud-based solutions, things that you know allowed real-time collaboration in a space, the proper type of even things like art reviews, like how do you do art reviews when everyone's remote? That's a problem we never had to really think about before. And so a lot of it was finding the tools that supported the workflows that we wanted to do and just running some tests. You know, we made some mistakes and we had to change up uh, in the middle of it. But also outside of just the tools and the process, also just for a while, we had a, a weekly DoorDash stipend for people to just say, you know, things are weird. Once a week, we'll take care of a meal for you. And just that morale boost that comes with that and letting everybody know that the company was there to support them as we figured out this transition. I actually think the efforts that we made more towards those were just as critical as the tools and everything that we did to support the production. Cool. And would you say that there were certain groups that kind of thrived more and some that struggled more in this kind of environment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As we've started to come back to the studio, I've talked with everyone at the company about their plans. And I've definitely got the people who can't wait to get back in and see everybody and be back in the studio. And there are some people who have decided that, you know, actually, I really, really like remote and I would like to stay remote permanently. And when we're figuring out how we balance all of that, right, we want to give people the flexibility to work the way that they feel is best. 
fortunately, we're small enough that we can really give people that more individual attention so we can make sure that we are accommodating their needs. Going a little bit back to, you know, where we started, kind of your career. Do you think that what makes a good leader within production have, have changed? If we think what a company should be looking for today, you think it's different today than it was some years ago or... I don't really. I think because fundamentally, it really is about understanding people, understanding process and the tools and kind of how it all comes together. And the circumstances may change. I mean, obviously, I think recent circumstances have required perhaps a greater flexibility and agility than previously. But I think the core values of what makes a strong leader and a strong producer are still what allows you to be successful even in the current environment. Do you think that it's becoming more popular to pursue this path or is this a career path in game development, which is on the rise or? I kind of think so. At GDC, I actually got to talk to some students who sat down with two or three at a place that these were students coming up as producers. And then while we were talking, uh, another two or three saw that we were having a conversation and heard that it was about production and they came over and they sat down. And I don't know that that's a thing that's ever happened. We've had student groups in the past and, you know, there'll be 30 people in the room and, you know, maybe one is considering production, but they're also a programmer, but they're also an artist, right? Like there was always a secondary thing. And so the fact that I'm coming across people who are going to school focused on production, I think is really great. Yeah. Awesome. And do you have like an advice for the ones who are thinking like that today? You know, I would say probably the biggest thing is focus on learning your team and understanding people and how to really work with different styles of people because you're going to come across all kinds and it's up to you to make the team work despite the varying personalities that you're going to have. And so the soft skills and understanding people and really getting to the core of what they need and how you can create the connections on your team is really one of the key parts to success. Cool. So finally, I have to ask you something, which is also on the trajectory of like past versus today. You know, I remember going back quite a few years and going to, for example, GDC. There was always that comparison with the movie industry. And it was always that kind of looking up to the movie industry and almost being, you know, like the kid brother, right? But today, the game industry is bigger. I noticed a lot of talent coming over from that has been in the movie industry before and coming into the game industry. Do you have like a personal reflection upon that? Do you feel like, yes, we won? <laughs> or, and second question to that is like, where do you think this is going? Will there be more like conversion between, or if you're just looking forward a couple of years, if we have this conversation again in you know five years, I mean, how do you think it will have changed? Well, I've always believed that games are really the medium of the future. That's a whole lot of what has attracted me to the industry in general. So, you know, the fact that we've surpassed movies isn't surprising because it really is kind of what I've always expected. And play is kind of a fundamental thing for humans anyway. I can see a future where there is definitely more kind of blurring the lines and going hand in hand with movies and films. Um, you know, League of Legends turns into a Netflix show. I think it's going to be, we're going to see more running in that direction as we go forward. That's a really good point. I am two uh, fellow founders at Favor and they were working on uh, the Chronicles of Riddick game back in the days at Starbreeze. And that was an interesting game because to be honest, the movie wasn't that great, you know? <laughs> but the game came out fantastic. That was such a unique thing then. And you know what you're saying now, if that starts being the norm, that's a pretty major shift, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we're still trying to, at least in a theatrical sense, we're still trying to find that really great video game movie. And so I think once that really gets figured out, then I think that kind of opens the floodgates to really letting that ecosystem thrive. All right, cool. You know, we're up on time. You know, I, I wish we could speak for longer, but um, there will be more opportunities in the future. And I, I can't wait to see you live again at another conference. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And for all of you who are listening right now on Spotify or YouTube or wherever, please um, subscribe you know, and, and share this so more people can uh, take part of this conversation. I think this was really great. Good talking to you, Kevin, and see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. See you. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out Favor Academy at favro.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all free of charge. Check it out.